process. It's wonderful to be together again. I feel privileged to preach and open God's Word up. And so we're continuing on the book of Mark. If you want to turn there in, the, in your Bible so long, we'll be towards uh, the end of Mark chapter 11 from verse uh, 27. And uh, we haven't said this really, but uh, if you've uh, followed along in your Bibles and the words we're speaking aren't quite matching up with your translation, uh, Doug and I both preach from the Christian Standard Bible version, CSB. It's not like an, our official church version, but um, we don't really have one. We've never made that like a thing, but that's what we preach from. If you're wondering, uh, it can be a Christmas gift or whatever it is. All right, this morning... As I was preparing, my mind went to a time when uh, my wife and I tells were at a, a family uh, place that they had on the Val Dam, and uh, we, we would go boating and tubing, and uh, w- one day we decided we just wanted to have a bit of a, a sleep in the sun, so we got in the tube, and uh, we're just sort of lying uh, about and having a bit of a, a kip in the sun. It was very nice. Uh, but then about, uh, about an hour or so later, we kind of woke up, and we had realized that we hadn't tied the tube to the boat. So we had drifted uh, hundreds of meters off, and uh, obviously panicked a little bit and found our way back. But how quickly that kind of thing happens, that kind of drift in our lives. We all kind of experience that sort of thing. Maybe something you've experienced is you might be at the beach, you know, when the lifeguards put those two flags, and that's your demarcated swimming area. But obviously the tide comes and pushes you or pulls you to one side or another, and you find yourself constantly trying to swim back to the demarcated areas. Um, and my mind kind of went to these sorts of things, because what I want to speak on today and what I'm seeing in the text is how this kind of drift happens to us in some ways spiritually. And we are we're just uh, subject to these forces of spiritual drift in our own hearts. And how it's like it seems at times that we're constantly fighting our way back to God and trying to remain faithful to Him in the midst of this, uh, in, in the midst of the tides of life. And uh, I don't know about you, but I would say this is my story. I know I'm prone to spiritual drift. I know that my heart is prone to wonder. And uh, by God's grace, this morning, as we look at this text, uh, Jesus has an interaction with religious leaders, and He has some strong words for them. And uh, it is a warning uh, to them and a rebuke to them, but also a gift to us as we look in and listen. It's, it's an opportunity for us, again, to say, Lord, what are you showing me about my own heart in this? And how might I come back to you again in full force and prevent myself from spiritual drift? How might I join myself and unite myself and tether myself to your, to your heart once again? Uh, and so that's what I want us to look at. So... Would you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11 from verse 27 until uh, chapter 12, verse 12. They came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. They discussed it among themselves, and they said, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, 
they were afraid of the crowds because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to, a, to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, and others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him He sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest Jesus, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. It's just such an interesting uh, passage, and By way of context, this would be happening round about on Tuesday, the Tuesday before Jesus would be crucified on Friday. And so a lot is going down here. And just to give us some clarity on where uh, I'd like to take us this morning, we're going to spend about half of our time unpacking what's going on in the text and then sort of the second half uh, applying it to us. And so if I only get to point number one in sort of 20 minutes' time, don't... Don't fear, we'll we'll, we'll still be uh, in good time here. But as we look at the text, I want us just to uh, come to three things. Firstly, the scene. Doug did a great job preaching last week on setting the scene and and helping us understand some of the sort of tension and what's at play here in this uh, moment. And what's happened is that Jesus has prayerfully uh, and just in reflection become righteously angry with the situation at the temple and the way the religious leaders had led the people astray. And uh, so one of the things he does is he goes into the temple, particularly the temple court that was reserved for uh, the Gentile nation, those who were not Jewish, as a place for them to draw near to God and engage God. But what had happened, as as, um, Doug helped us see last week, is that they had turned this place where people were meant to come, the nations were meant to come and engage God, into a marketplace. And so they were, it turned it into a business where they would sell uh, goats to be sacrificed and whatever at, at inflated rates and where there were money changes, changing um, different currencies and so on. And Jesus comes in and flips tables and he's angry because this marketplace, he calls it a den of thieves, was meant to be a place where the nations could come and engage God. And so this breaks his heart. And so the 
the, the religious leaders come and see Jesus doing all this and, and speaking with such force against them. And so they come and ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? Like, essentially what they're saying is, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are coming here and acting like this? By what authority are you doing these things? How can you come here and act this way? And Jesus sees through their question because he knows that this is not a sincere question. They're not genuinely wanting to know by what authority he's doing these things. They're not coming in earnest trying to understand who Christ is, with what power he's working, with what authority he's speaking. This is not a sincere question. It, it says it pretty clearly in verse 12 that they were looking for a way to arrest him. This was a trap. And so Jesus sees through it and he's, Jesus would have made a brilliant lawyer. He responds with a question. He responds to a question with another question, right? So in a beautiful evasion tactic. But it's a really great question, and it's a very pointed question. And so he speaks about John the Baptist, and this is a very significant uh, person. Jesus could have maybe talked about many other people, but he chooses John the Baptist for several reasons. One of them being that, like Jesus, John the Baptist didn't have any religious, formal religious credentials. He wasn't a, a formal Pharisee. He didn't pass the school of religion. He was just a guy anointed by God. The, the people could see that God's spirit was on him, but he didn't have any religious credentials. And one of the reasons Jesus points to John is, is for this reason, that he didn't need human titles. He had God's blessing and anointing on him as a spiritual authority, like Jesus. And so Jesus asks this question as a way of exposing their hearts, the religious leaders' hearts. And so he says, what do you think about John's baptism? Was it from God or not? And they, they're in a dilemma here because, if, as we just read, if they say, uh, yes, it was, Jesus is going to get to the real issue going on. Why didn't you believe him? Then? Why didn't you believe him? Yet they know if they say, no, John wasn't from God, then they're saying he's not a prophet and they feared the crowds. And they knew that they'd get in trouble with the crowds. So they simply say, we don't know. And so Jesus is brilliantly highlighting the real issue. And we're going we're gonna to look at this. It's the issue of unbelief. Why didn't you believe him then? That's the issue that's running through this um, interaction with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders, is that like John, Jesus has come by God's authority, and instead of asking, how can we know God, what can we learn from you, listening in, they're not looking for him, they're coming to question Jesus, they're not looking for God genuinely, so the issue is that their hearts are unbelieving and hard. Jesus, I, th I think, points to John the Baptist for at least two other reasons, one being that John the Baptist. Uh, was sort of the last prophet before Jesus. And so he was the one, perhaps more than any other, uh, given the role of pointing to Jesus specifically with the symbol or, or the picture of baptism. And so he would come, John the Baptist, that's how he gets his name. He, he would baptize people as a picture of what Jesus would come and do. He would cleanse us from our sins. He would uh, help us die and rise again to new life in him. So this is picture that Jesus is trying to help us uh, see here. And so when Jesus comes to John, 
to be baptized himself. Before he gets baptized, John the Baptist looks at Jesus and he proclaims this in John 1.29. He says, he sees him and he recognizes this guy is different. There's something about him. He says, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one everyone's been waiting for. This is the one who I've been baptizing to point to. This is the one God has finally come to forgive and to deal with the sin of the world. And I think the final reason uh, Jesus points to John the Baptist is because as Jesus gets baptized, the issue of his, uh, his authority, the issue of the, of the authority of Jesus becomes clear and evident. You read with me in, John, um, in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says this. When Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. You see, Jesus didn't need the affirmation or the recognition or the human titles as a way of affirming his authority because he already had his authority made very clear by the Father himself. And so the real issue here, as we're looking at the text, isn't about a question of, who, of, of is Jesus authoritative? I think that should be pretty obvious. Of course he is. The real issue here is that question he, he, the, the um, spiritual leaders recognized was the question of why didn't you believe in me? Why didn't you believe in me? These facts are made clear, but why didn't you believe in them? And so again and again, Jesus is making it abundantly clear. The issue here is spiritual unreceptivity. It's the issue of hard-heartedness, the issue of unbelief, the issue of being unable to recognize and submit and surrender to the power and authority of Jesus. And so what he does as a way of confronting their unbelief as a way of confronting their unreceptivities, he then responds to them with a parable about the vineyard. And this is, this is a potent, really, really hard-hitting parable in context because what he's doing is he's, is he's um, addressing them in terms that they understand to be about them. That's why at the end of the parable it says they knew this parable was spoken against them. He, they knew full well what Jesus was saying in this moment. Unlike many of his other parables, the people aren't always clear what he meant. This one, they are 100% certain what Jesus is saying. And uh, uh, Doug helped us see sort of the, the layout or the, or the kind of um, architecture of the temple court and how big it would have been, several soccer fields big. Uh, this moment when Jesus is um, speaking this parable, he, he would have been sort of in, in one of the doors of the temple, and above him would have been a huge, like 30 meter high doorway and pillars, and part of the pattern of this doorway was vines. So there would be vines all over this place. It, would, it was apparently very beautiful. I, I couldn't find a good enough picture of it, but several commentaries mentioned this, and why it's important is because throughout the Bible, one of the pictures used to describe the nation of Israel, God's people, is a vine or a vineyard. This is a, a symbol that they know to represent them. That's why they put it on the temple. 
It, it's something they know is like a symbol of who they are. It's, it's like on their national flag, maybe, if we could put it that way. It would be a vineyard or a vine. This is something that represents them. And so the story as it unfolds is, is Jesus giving this parable about how God is the owner of this vineyard. He is the God of his people. And he sends his servants to go collect some fruit, but his servants get rejected. And it happens again and again and again and again. And what these uh, servants who go and collect fruit represent are the prophets that God has sent, the prophets and the leaders that God had sent to his nation to point to God, to point to himself. These were the guys that were representing the owner of the vineyard and pointing people to himself. But yet what happened is that his people rejected him and would not listen to the message of grace and would not listen to the message of forgiveness. And so they would reject and even kill the prophets. And we see this happening again and again throughout Scripture. They get rejected. And so what does God do in his love and grace? At the right time, God himself comes down in his son. And so we read in Hebrews 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, it says, Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so we get the son himself coming down as a representative of the father, the owner, and the king of this vineyard to come and point us back to him. And yet Jesus, in his prophetic uh, wisdom and foresight and authority, he knows how this story is going to end. They're going to reject him too, and he's going to be killed. Friday is coming. So I want to I for a moment, just before we apply this to ourselves, just look at uh, the purpose, of, I think, that Mark included it in his gospel and why God wants us, he, he includes this in, in um, Matthew and Luke as well, and, and why it's there. Uh, you know, if we are believers reading this about how other people have rejected him, it's very interesting, but if you're a believer, you've accepted him. So how does it apply to you? And I, I, would, say, I would say a few things here. I would say, firstly, uh, these kind of texts are often uh, warnings uh, to those who are currently rejecting Jesus, obviously, right? They, uh, they function as a kind of rebuke to those who are currently rejecting Jesus. So it's clear that Jesus saves throughout Scripture his harshest words for the spiritual leaders and the Pharisees who think they don't need him. It's clear this uh, issue here is the question is that they don't believe that he is the ultimate authority. They don't believe. They haven't surrendered to him. That's why they come to him and say, by what authority are you doing these things? And that's why, they, why, why Jesus is quick to respond by telling them a parable in which he's the owner. He's telling them, oh, guys, listen, I'm the authority here. And you've rejected me. That's the issue. Now, on first glance, and there's many passages like this throughout Scripture it, it may seem harsh, like a, like a judgment from God on people. And to be sure, there are many of those in Scripture that we read. But many uh, Scriptures like this function as warnings. And the purpose of them is that those who hear and read, who are far from God, would read them, see themselves, be convicted of sin and how far they've gone from God, 
and turn back to Him. That's His heart, that yes, these are harsh warnings, but they're warnings intended to turn hearts back towards Him. That's why God puts it in there. So another example might be Mark uh, chapter 4, that we, read, that we preached about probably in about March or April, about the different kinds of soils. And he tells a, a, a picture of how some seeds are a land on uh, the path and the devil snatches them up before they take root. And others land on rocky ground and they, they spring up but short-lived and they die. And others are trapped among the thorns and they just they never they never flourish in life because the cares of this world and all these things are choking them. And yet only one out of the four does well and flourishes and is landed on the good soil. You see, it's not uh, meant uh, to fatalistically uh, say these are the different kinds of people. Of course, people will find themselves in one of the four, but it's intended for those listening to be able to act like a mirror. Oh, wow, that's my issue. And to cause us to turn back to God that we might flourish and become the good soil. You see how God uses warnings in Scripture. And I think this warning of God towards us this morning might be, as we consider ourselves, is there any kind of this spiritual uh, leader, these kind of Pharisees? Is there, is there a little Pharisee in your heart? Is there a little Pharisee in my heart? Some little Pharisee that looks at Jesus and says, who do you think you are? By what authority are you doing this? By what authority are you taking me through this? By what authority can you command me to do this? By what authority... What, who do you think you are coming in here and telling me to do this and live my life that way? And yet the invitation to us is that it's a joyful and beautiful and uh, life-giving thing to surrender to Jesus because he's a good and gracious king. He's not a tyrant. He's not a dictator. And so these warnings to those who reject Jesus are intended to become invitations for those considering Jesus and invitations to come back home to those who have um, fallen away or, or slipped away from God in some way. You can come back home in full force. We can return and believe. I'll, I'll let the mighty Charles Spurgeon or the Spurge say it. He says this, do not refuse him. If you were stern and unloving, I could imagine that all the obstinacy of your nature might be aroused, but his love deserves another treatment. If you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring us resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. And I think it's just such a beautiful quote because no matter how far we might reject him, no matter how far we might drift, his love and, and, and sort of the tone, the tone of Christ's love is that it is always rushing towards those who are spiritually struggling and falling away. And I hope that might just encourage our hearts this morning. There is a little Pharisee in you, like I know there is a little Pharisee in me. Like I know my heart is prone to wonder. There is no amount of running from my side that can outrun the love of God. He will trace us down and win us and bring us back home. And it's a good thing for us to step into that. Remember the harsh words of Jesus, like, he, like when we saw last week, he came and flipped over the temples. It is because of his love, 
because he wants it to be different, because he wants people to be able to engage him. And so that's the call to us again today. And so for, for us who do believe and are following Jesus the best we can as he enables us, as we read a text like this about our spiritual receptivity, as our softness, about our softness of heart to Jesus, about how we might be surrendering, surrendering and living surrendered lives to him, What's the call on us? What is the call on us? And uh, as I started, this is, this is what I think. I think the call on us is to be aware of the spiritual drift in our lives and to cultivate spiritual receptivity in our hearts. You know, and we've, we've spoken about this throughout the book of Mark. We, we've, this whole year, pretty much, we've only preached on Mark, pretty much. And we've spoken various times, many ways, about um, surrendering to the authority of Jesus. And we've spoken about it in many different ways and forms. This morning, this is what I want us to look at. Uh, to say it negatively again, preventing spiritual drift, to say it positively, cultivating receptivity to Jesus. How can we make sure the soil of our hearts are receptive to Him? What can we do? I know, I know like I said, my, my heart is prone to wonder and and so I think that I've got um, six things. I know that's a lot. And we're going to race through them a bit. But I really feel like each one of these matter. And it's not the only six things I could say. But I think these are, are six of the really important sort of pillars God gives us to sort of tether ourselves to so that we don't drift too far from home and that we can be close to Him. And the first thing is this, as we've just read, we have to be convinced that God is supreme, that there is no one above him, that everything connects back to him, that he is above it all. This text is very clearly about Christ's authority, and I think that's where we have to start. In the text, Jesus is rebuking the religious leaders because they weren't genuinely putting God first. They weren't seeking him. They weren't listening out for him like, saying, Lord, how might, you, how might you be revealing yourself to me? I think if that was the posture of their hearts, they would be a lot more receptive to Jesus. But they were all about the business of selling goats and cattle and about being very religious. And it would become an outward religious um, sort of business sort of thing. And so Jesus rebukes them because that's the very thing they're getting wrong, is that God is meant to be first in their lives. And I think it's very interesting here is that Jesus is he's going after the spiritual leaders. He's, he doesn't say these kind of harsh words very often to sort of the lay people. He, he says it to the spiritual leaders. And there's something in this for us, and he unpacks it in the parable, is that God has sent spiritual leaders to be the ones that are meant to point people to himself. And they had messed it up. They weren't pointing people to him. They weren't preparing people for Christ. John was doing that. John the Baptist was doing that. They weren't doing that. They were uh, being very religious and protecting the religious things, but pointing towards uh, Jesus was not what they had focused on. And so God saves his harshest words for his leaders who were meant to do this. And man, I'll just say this outright here. Like, that's our goal in this church, that like as leaders, we want to point people away from ourselves and towards Jesus. It's never going to be the Dave show. 
the Doug show, the whoever show. It's going to be the Jesus show. We want him to be front and center no matter what, all the time. People come and go, but he is the king of the world. And uh, how does this matter at a personal level? I, I would just say this, that um, Tal shared it a few weeks ago when she did the call to worship, that each one of us has a sort of God-shaped hole in our heart. Whether we realize it or not, there, there are things in us uh, that, that are just longing for something more. We're longing for God, maybe without even realizing it. And so we grab onto a hundred things. But really our hearts, as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in Him alone. And so we are made to come to Him as our supreme leader in our lives and rest in His authority over us. It's of course true that Jesus is supreme. But there's a relational aspect to this, is that he wants, us, uh, he wants us to have him first in our lives as we follow him and to rest in him. And so that's what he says when he says, the, builders, uh, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. He always was the cornerstone of everything, but it's now personal to him. With his people, he'd become the cornerstone of the new temple that is us, his people. And we follow him. God must be supreme. The second thing is that we must be convinced that we are spiritually broken. It's, it's very hard to be receptive to Jesus when we don't think we need him. Our, our, our realization that we need him is directly tied to how much we seek him and depend on him. And so again, at a, at a at a personal level, Jesus confronts the Pharisees because they are questioning him. They're not genuinely seeking him. They're trying to trap him. They're not looking for him because they don't think they need him. That's why they're trying to execute him. They think he's a threat, not a savior. And so how might we turn towards him again and again and again? And it's, it's so helpful that throughout the Gospels, and what we've seen in Mark time and time again is that there are two kinds of people. There are the very religious, usually the Pharisees, who are self-sufficient and who come to Jesus in opposition. They're always bringing some new drama or some new argument against Jesus. Yet you also see people who are deeply in need and desperate and broken and they need healing and so many things are happening and they run to Jesus and say, please would you help me? Have we ever once read Jesus say, nah, of course not. It's those people that Christ runs towards again and again. And it's those who don't think they need him that Jesus says his harshest words for. So our spiritual brokenness is a beautiful thing because we get more of Jesus the more we come to him for help. And so that's the third thing I want to say that we must be convinced that Jesus is our only hope. He's our only hope, our only spiritual hope. What, what, do, we, what do we do with all this brokenness? If, if God is by His Spirit allowing us to see more of our need day by day, and we won't see all of it at once, I think it's, it's just a, a thing that happens as we follow Him more, that it's a gift. God enables us to see the state of our hearts more clearly. And like our need for Christ grows and the Christ that helps us and meets us in our need grows at the same time. And it's this lifelong thing that grows together. We see ourselves more clearly. We depend on Christ more fully. That's the gift 
of the gospel. But we must believe that Christ is our only hope. Uh, and we live in a culture um, that might believe that Jesus is one of the possible hope options. But sort of all roads lead to Rome. We're all going to get home in the end, and it's okay. I think Jesus' parable of what happens to uh, the tenants who reject him is very startling but very clear. Not all roads lead to, to Rome. And I would say this, that of course sincerity matters, but I've heard the argument that it doesn't really matter which path you take. You might be going via Cape Town, you might be going via Durban, others might be going via the UK, or, or maybe not with <laughs> the recent travel ban. But we're all getting to the same place. It's okay. It's okay. We're all arriving at the same place. What matters is our sincerity. God will see our sincerity. And I would say this, of course, sincerity is a beautiful thing. But I can, I can get on a plane sincerely believing it's taking me to Zimbabwe only to get off the plane and realize I'm in the Botswana airport. Right? What matters is the direction. If you want to get to Zimbabwe, you've got to make sure you're getting on the plane going to Zimbabwe. Jesus makes it clear in his word that he's such a faithful savior, but that he is only, the only hope we have. And it's this duality of, yes, it's an exclusive claim. It's an exclusive claim. He's the only savior, but it's the most inclusive, exclusive claim you'll find because when we come to him in our need, he will welcome us home and he will smile upon us and he'll hug us and bring us in. I think the fourth thing is that, um, oh, before I get there, I'll just say this. As we're getting ready for Christmas, this again is our hope, that Jesus really is the one who has come to save us and to bring us back home. And so someone said that uh, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. That is the story of Christmas, this Advent season, as we prepare for him once again, as we consider him once again, that all our hope can be put uh, in him. And the fourth thing is that we must be convinced that following Jesus is joyful. We must be convinced that following Jesus is joyful. I don't, I don't know what everyone in the room does for a living, um, but I've been alive long enough to know that um, it can be hard to get up in the morning when you don't enjoy your job. <laughs> when you're just hating what you're doing, getting up in the morning is hard work, right? And I think some of us... Uh, Follow Jesus like this. It's just so hard. It's just so tough. Like there's just grit and bear it. And it's just hard, man. This isn't enjoyable. I'm not, I'm not enjoying this. And to be sure, there are times where it's hard. But the gift of the Spirit and just what He's growing in us and doing in us and preparing us for as we follow Him is a beautiful thing. It's very hard to be joyful and receptive to Jesus when we're following him sort of against our will. And again, I'll let the Spurge say it. He says, when God sends his son to plead with men, remember, he does not urge us to anything which will be for our detriment. Obedience to him is happiness for our souls. He does not urge us to follow a life of misery, nor to begin a course which will end in our destruction. Far from it. They that repent and turn to God through Jesus Christ find such joy, such happiness, that earth becomes to them the vestibule of heaven, a 
vestibule is kind of like um, a foyer that leads into a larger hall. It's like we're being prepared for something. And it's a joy-giving thing. It's a life-giving thing. And when we forget this, it becomes hard work. It becomes unjoyful work. Our hearts will grow cold to Christ. We no longer are receptive and warm to Him. Our hearts grow cold when we say, who do you think you are? Who gave you this authority? But it's a joyful thing to submit to him. The fifth thing I'd say, we have to be convinced that we have help along the way. We have help along the way. I think uh, it's very difficult to maintain receptivity to Jesus when we've burnt ourselves out um, running on our own steam. And I think we all know something of what it's like to, to follow him in our own strength. But he's given us such amazing gifts to follow him. We have help along the way. Uh, and just briefly, I'd say he's particularly given us three gifts. Given us the gift of his spirit to empower us and encourage us and to fuel us. He's given us the gift of his word, the Bible, to teach us, to guide us to comfort us, to give us words we don't even have sometimes. And he's given us the precious gift of his people, his, his spirit, his word, his people. And we get to encourage each other and, and carry each other when we need carrying, to fuel each other. This, these are the help God gives us. We're not left to our own devices. He gives us gifts to fuel us, to carry us along, to keep our, our hearts uh, warm to him and receptive to him. The more, uh, we, when we receive Jesus, it'll often come through receiving more of these things. So often he uses his spirit to empower us, to help us uh, come to him more fully. He'll use the Bible to open our hearts and convict us and bring us back home. He'll use his people to encourage us and urge us and spur us along as we cheer each other along the journey. It's a beautiful thing. Lastly, I'll just say this, that we must be convinced that heaven is our true home. I think life is just so full of complexities. There's more than enough anxieties and stress and pain and hurt and just brokenness. And I, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. Each one of us is carrying something. Each one of us is carrying something. I think the more that we become overwhelmed with the pain and, and just complexity and, and sufferings of life, it'll eventually crush us if we aren't being held by Jesus. We will be in a place we can no longer even receive him in any way because we'll just be so crushed by life. And yet it's such good news that in the midst of this brokenness we all experience, there is a hope held out for us that we can hold on to. But as I said, we have the gift of His Spirit to comfort us and be with us in our trials. But there is also the hope of a better home that we're being prepared for. The Scriptures talk so often about this that it's a good thing to hope in heaven. We have a, a hope to look forward to. It's, things aren't always going to be this way. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to collect us. He's going to fix our wounds and our brokenness. And we're going to live in perfect joy without tears, without suffering, without loss, without pain. And we're going to say together, thank you, Lord, that you had authority. 
Because if you had not, we would have no hope. Thank you, Lord, that you were in charge. You are so kind. So we get to set our hearts on longing most fully for where we belong most truly. This world is not our home. And so we're being prepared for things. And so just, just as we sort of wrap up this moment, and we're going to respond in communion just now. It's a beautiful gift to us as we get to just consider the example of what Jesus is saying to the religious leaders and how they had rejected him and would reject him in three days' time, Friday is coming. That we get to look at that and consider our hearts. How receptive is my heart in this moment to the love of Jesus? Am I doubting any of these truths that we've unpacked? I really believe as we come back to these things, as we reorientate ourselves to the true story of, of where we're at, that God uses those things to, again, soften us to the love of Jesus. We get to just come to him as we are. And so if there's any lack of uh, trust in Jesus, if there's any Pharisee-like unbelief, just as I started, we get to, again, just take the rope of our little um, uh, boat or whatever it is and tether ourselves, moor ourselves to the rock of Christ. Yes, there will still be struggle. Yes, we'll still drift. But as we give ourselves to Christ again, we get to tether ourselves to his own heart for us. And so I would just say this, like, if you're watching online or or. I don't know if there's someone here who maybe is still not quite a Christian or considering. I would just say this. He is a trustworthy, faithful Savior. And it is so good to surrender our lives to him and rest that he's got us and that he can save us and forgive us. And if you perhaps this morning um, just are aware of how, I don't want to use the word backslidden, I hate that term, but if you've um, drifted from his grace, in some way, this morning, there is ample grace for him to bring you back home. And it is good news for us to do that. And we can come home without a question of a doubt, without wondering if he's going to welcome us or not. The gospel says what kind of God he is. He's smiling on you again this morning. And so I just want to pray for us as we, as we enter into a time of communion. And Doug will come up and, and lead us in communion just now. But I want us to just spend some time in reflection and prayer. So let's pray together. Lord, we want to thank you this morning for your abundant grace that um, you, you want uh, each of us here this morning to respond to you. And that you're not uh, forcing us in any way as some sort of tyrant or dictator, but that you're the God who came down to seek and save that which was lost. And you are seeking us again out this, this morning. And we want to say thank you we want to respond to you. We want to pray that you would help us trust in you again, uh, whoever or uh, wherever we might be at, God. I pray that you would help us understand and recognize that you see exactly what we've carried with us this morning and where we're at. 
and that you would again give us the grace of, as we come to you, that you'd give us the grace of a rest in the gospel, and that you'd fill us again by your spirit. God, I pray that um, as we respond, that we keep our hearts soft and receptive to you, dear Lord. I pray that you would enable us to grow deep roots in you, that we'd be able to tether our, our heart to your heart and, and moor our, our, our rope, as it were, to the rock of Christ. We just want to say thank you that you, there is more grace in you and mercy in you than there is sin in us. And again this morning, you are working towards us in love and we want to rest in that. We want to come back to you. We want to say thank you, thank you, thank you that you are in charge. You're a good and gracious king. Help us respond to you now.